before we jump into the passage, we are going to do what we always do before jumping into the passage. Let's talk to our young ones. Uh, so uh, little ones, kids, young ones, let me have your attention. I want to ask you all a question, uh, let you all know what the passage is going to be about and uh, what the sermon is going to be about. So uh, first question, kids, somebody tell me, what does righteousness mean? Any guesses? No bad guesses, no bad answers. Being good. That's righteousness. Being good, like being perfectly good. Okay, so if I could, young ones, please stand up. All our kids, please stand. If you're, if you're willing to join in a little test, uh, please stand up. Parents, you cannot help. Sit on your hands, parents. No pulling, tugging, no help. Uh, kids, what you can do is you can look around at the other kids. If y'all want to kind of make these decisions together, you can decide together how you're gonna how you're gonna do this. Okay, here we go. Everyone standing. Keep stand. I think we've done this before. Let's see if y'all remember. Keep standing. If you think you are as righteous as your best friend, keep standing. <laughs> keep. Standing, okay, okay. Uh, keep standing if you think you're as righteous as your mom and your dad. How about this? Keep standing if you think you're as righteous as Pastor Blake. I'm not as righteous as your mom and dad. Uh, keep standing if you think you're as righteous as Moses. <laughs> keep, keep standing if you think you're as righteous as the Apostle Paul. Keep standing if you think you're as righteous as Jesus. Is anyone still standing? Raise your hand. Yes? Yes! Olivia and Charlotte still standing. Y'all, kids, all of you. And Henry, were you still standing? Or are you just standing up now? That's okay. You can stand up right now. Because here's the thing. That is, that. okay, let me ask you this. Okay, uh, are you, you know, the thing was like, oh, you should all be standing. Now, is that because... Are you, are you righteous because you've not done any bad stuff and because you've done everything, all the good stuff you've done? Is that what I'm standing up here saying is like, oh, you should all be standing because you guys have never done anything bad and you're so, so good. Is that what I'm saying? No, no, no way. No, because that's not true. Okay, here's what, I, imagine you're at school and you're taking a test and you're taking this really hard test and you bomb it. You fail. You, you get like most of the answers wrong. Okay, that's your test. And sitting next to you in the same class is Jesus. And he's taking the same test and he aces it. Okay, then you both, he gets every answer right. Perfect. And you both go in and you both hand your test to the teacher who is God. And God takes both your tests. And this is what God does. God takes your test and he writes Jesus's name on it. And then he takes Jesus' test and he writes your name on it. That would be pretty cool, right? Well, that's, that, is what ha that is what's happening in heaven. That's what's happening in heaven is in uh, Jesus came down from heaven and he lived a perfect life, a righteous life. And then he died, not for his sins, he died for your sins. He died for your imperfect life. And if you believe in Jesus... If you just believe in Jesus, all your sin is counted to Jesus. And his perfect life is counted to you. 
It's this great swap, this great trade, this great exchange. You get forgiveness and you get his righteous life. Count it as if it was yours so that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. That is what we call this big word. It's called justification, which is all about just being right before God. And you get that because of what Jesus did for you. He gets your bad stuff counted to him. You get all his good stuff counted to you. So you get forgiveness. And not just forgiveness, y'all. You get his righteousness as if it was yours for real. And all you have to do is believe in Jesus. That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're in our series in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Just to catch everyone up, um, uh, the Old Testament book of Zechariah is about uh, Israel had been in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. You know, the big major world empire, Babylon, comes. They destroy Jerusalem and Judah. They take all these people, all the Jews, captive into Babylon for 70 years. And then Persia rises up as the new world power and uh, they conquer Babylon, and they look at all the Jews, and they're like, hey, y'all can go live wherever you want in the empire. You want to go home? You want to go back to Jerusalem? Go for it. Rebuild Jerusalem. Rebuild your temple. Worship your God. We're cool with it. Just know that we're still in charge. And so uh, you do get a group of Jews that go back to Jerusalem, and they start rebuilding, and they're rebuilding the temple, and they're just, they're meeting. They're, they're being met with all this opposition from the people that are already there. You know, these Samaritans, the other people have moved in, and they're finding trouble. Uh, they're just they're suffering um, uh, so severely, and, and they're trying to rebuild God's temple. And they're like, God, what is up? Like, we're doing this for you. And so God sends the prophet Zechariah to this people. And we're in um, chapter 3 of Zechariah. The first half of Zechariah are a series of night visions that are given by God to Zechariah to give to the people assurance of salvation, that God is at work right now. Uh, and so we're in this fourth vision, and all the visions build on each other. And really, the fourth one is kind of the climactic one. If you think in, in a series of seven, you know, the fourth one is right in the middle. So this is a big one. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Zechariah 3, verses 1 to 10. We are going to be concentrating on the middle portion, 3, 4, 5. Uh, but we're, you need the whole context of the whole vision. So here it is. Then he showed me Joshua. So this is Zechariah saying, then God showed me this vision. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord Solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. 
In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So again, just a reminder, we were in this passage last week. Uh, We're going to be in it one more week, so we're not getting to everything here. But this is like part two of three, and it all goes together. Uh, So if you're just joining us, you're going to get caught up and uh, and. We're not getting to everything in this passage, but we will by next Sunday. So, just like, just like we're looking for just, just like your, uh, fr- you have dreams and your friends show up in your dreams. Uh, Zechariah the prophet, he sees his friend Joshua, the high priest. Joshua is the high priest at this time, in in Jerusalem. Zechariah is having this vision, and his friend Joshua the high priest is in the vision. And he sees Joshua standing in the throne room of God, in the throne room of heaven, standing before the angel of the Lord, and he's standing there for judgment. And it's shocking, and it's really scary, because Joshua is not wearing his high priestly clothes. He's wearing filthy, this is actually, it's it's excrement-covered rags, meaning that he is stained from head to toe with sin. And Satan is standing there. Satan stands next to Joshua to accuse him, to get a guilty verdict in in order to see Joshua condemned. And this vision, it feels like a waking nightmare as as you're just coming into it. But then the angel of the Lord looks at Satan and says, no. And then he makes a judgment. But it's Satan who gets rebuked and condemned. We've got to remember that, you know, wait, is there a problem here? Because sin actually really does render the sinner inexcusably guilty, liable to God's just wrath, meaning sin renders us like deserving eternal condemnation. So the question is, wait a second, how can a sinful person stand before God? How can a sinful person be right with God? And so Satan's accusation here, we noted this last time, we really got to point this up here. Satan's accusation against the high priest is really an accusation against the angel of the Lord. As in like this angel of the Lord who has let this unfit, unclean priest defile the holy place of heaven with his presence. This angel of the Lord has, he not only tolerates sinners, look at him, he consorts with sinners. Like, This angel of the Lord, he's not a worthy judge. He's not worthy to sit as judge. He has failed, and therefore he has disqualified himself to be the guard of God's sanctuary. And and we know from previous visions uh, and elsewhere in the Bible, remember that the angel of the Lord is actually the Christ. It's the Son of God manifesting, showing up as an angel appearing as an angel. And so Satan is accusing the Son of God that he is unfit to be Savior, unfit to be Lord. I heard about this play a couple different times, and so I'm finally reading it right now. It's, it's called The Sign of Jonah. And in 1960, in Berlin, after World War II, there's a Lutheran pastor named Gunther uh, Rittenborn, who, uh, Rutenborn, sorry, and, and he's struggling with the, the atrocities of, of Hitler and Nazi Germany. And uh, it, this question keeps coming back to him of like, who is to blame? 
And so he writes this play to try to answer this problem. And it's a, it's a historical fiction. And so in the play, the German people are being confronted with the horrors of the, of the Holocaust. And so somebody says, you know, who's responsible for this? And the housewives say, oh, I was just listening to my husband, so blame my husband. And the husbands say, well, I, wait, I was just listening to the soldiers, so blame the soldiers. And the soldiers say, wait, wait, I was just listening to the sergeants, like blame the sergeants. And the sergeants say, you know, and up and up and up, the hierarchy of authority, it goes, and it even goes past Hitler. And up and up and up until the people realize, like, wait, wait, we know who's to blame for this broken world and the suffering in it. It's God. And so the people put God on trial. And this is what Satan is doing. And this is what we do. M maybe not uh, verbally, uh, consciously, subconsciously, maybe. But this thing of, it's not my fault, it's the capitalist's fault. And the capitalists, blame them. No, 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 it's not my fault, it's the Marxist's fault. Like, blame them. No, 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 it's not my fault the world is broken, it's the right. No, 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 it's the left. No, 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 it's that group. It's not our group. Or just, it's not me. This is, it's not my fault. And there is a part of us that goes to all the way of blaming God. The suffering in our life, the suffering in the world. And how does God answer these charges? How does God answer Satan's charge? How does God answer our charges? How can God allow sinners into his presence, save a broken world, and uphold his justice? It says here that the angel of the Lord turns his attention to Joshua and something marvelous happens, which is easy for us not to marvel at if we're not paying attention to Joshua. This is what he does right here. This is replaying the rituals for the original priests. So if you go back to the book of Exodus, God chooses Aaron, the brother of Moses, to be the first priest of Israel. And there's this ceremony to make him the first priest. So the first step in the ceremony is Moses has to wash Aaron. And so here, Joshua, the high priest, his filthy clothes are removed. So like the first priest, Joshua is getting some laundering treatment here. And Aaron, Aaron being washed back in Exodus, it, you know, the washing wasn't subjective in the sense of that being, you know, being washed with water did not make Aaron inwardly clean it was a symbol, like it was a ceremony. It was a symbol judiciously declaring him clean of, of, of getting right with God. It was, it was a symbol of his forgiveness of sins. And earlier what we did in the service is we took up David's prayer in Psalm 51 for our confession of sin. Before, before David says, remember that part, he says, wash me clean, right before that, he says, blot out my transgressions. So blot out my transgressions. Wash me clean. Those are actually not two different actions. It's one action said two different ways where he's saying, so take care of my sin so I do not stand guilty before you. That's the prayer. And so here, Joshua, the removal of Joshua's soiled clothes, this is answering Satan's accusation. Like, this is why the angel of the Lord rebukes Satan and judges Joshua as innocent. 
Because the removal of these filthy garments, that's the first step to enable Joshua to be legally able to stand in God's presence. Joshua's, it's his record of offenses. It's wiped clear. And the way the angel of the Lord declares to Joshua, he says, look, look, I have taken, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And that same language, in other passages, that language of taken away, it's all about forgiveness of sins. And so, so go back to Psalm 51, David, you know, confessing. The background for that psalm, which he tells us in verse 0, the background for that Psalm 51, the confession of sin is, that it's, you see it in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, which says this, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, yes, and the Lord has, has also put away your sin. So that, that put away your sin it's the exact same language of taken away your iniquity. And that word literally means to pass over. So again, this is a fun little uh, word uh, study here. That, that same word in Exodus 12, uh, you see it there. It's when the angel of, it's, it, you know, it's, it's Passover. It's when the angel of destruction shows up to take the firstborn, but he, pa- quote, passes over uh, Israel, and he passes over all those who have put the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. So the destroying angel passes over them for judgment. So the idea here is when the angel of the Lord removes Joshua's filthy garments, he is passing over Joshua in judgment because he has made Joshua's sins pass from him. So when the angel of the Lord declares he has passed over Joshua's sins, he has taken away his iniquity, it is a declaration of justification. That big word, that justification, has to do with being just, has to do with having a right status before God, like being justified, standing in his presence. It's legal language. Think courtroom. That Joshua is able to be in God's presence because legally he is not a sinner anymore in the eyes of the court because his sins are forgiven. He is innocent of the charges. And right at this moment, Satan probably wants to throw up his hands and cry foul. Like he wants to say, whoa, uh, objection. Y'all know, <clears throat> y'all know that part in uh, Braveheart? Remember Braveheart? Uh, after, uh, so it's after William Wallace as Mel Gibson uh, makes his great speech. That's a joke. Um, is Mel Gibson, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Uh, and he rides off. Then he, you remember, right before this battle, he rides off into the parley because he, you know, the English lords and the Scottish lords are going to meet and they're going to discuss negotiations and terms. And he doesn't, he, he doesn't want there to be any negotiations. So he's going to pick a fight. He's making sure that there's no parley. And so he interrupts, like he rides up and they've started talking and he interrupts the negotiations. Uh, and, and, he starts declaring Scotland's terms, uh, which is, it's nothing less than like total surrender and reparations on their way out. Uh, that, you know, he, he's saying this, and the English lord there just starts laughing mockingly. And William Wallace yells, I'm not finished. It's awesome. Uh, and he's got, you know, and then he gives him one more final term. Like, that's what the angel of the Lord is doing here. Like he removes Joshua's filthy garments, 
He declares him forgiven, and before Satan can object, it's this moment of, I'm not finished. Then the angel of the Lord says, he says, remove the filthy garments from him, and to him he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So forgiveness is canceling your debt. It is clearing your record. And as glorious as that reality is, it's not enough. Jesus is not finished. You don't just need to be cleared of your law-breaking. You also need the positive credit of law-keeping. And where does that come from? Like, it's not just forgiven, clean slate. Like, you've got to be righteous, And the question is, okay, where does that righteousness come from? And this is where people say, well, yeah, that's where I come in. Like, that's my job as a Christian. God forgives me, gives me a clean slate, brings me back to even, and then I take it from there with my good works uh, and my obedience. God forgives me, uh, gets me back to even, and then it's my righteousness that gets me the rest of the way. That is a very bad idea. It is a very dangerous, dangerous view, and that is not good news, and that is not the good news of the gospel. And it is because you are not good enough. You are not enough. And if this is the way you go, your life will be full of insecurity and fear and despair if you think it's up to you and your righteousness is to get you to heaven, and it won't get you there. Because you can't pray enough, you can't read your Bible enough, you can't obey enough to fulfill all righteousness. And let me say this, our righteousness is born, we do, we do obey, but it's born, that obedience is born out of our faith. It's the fruit of our faith. It's, the, it's our faith working itself out in obedience, but our obedience is not the basis on which we stand to get into heaven. These garments that are given to Joshua, they are pure. And our righteousness in this life, it's always imperfect. The righteousness on which we stand, it is also given to us like these garments are given to Joshua. And when we do have those moments, you know, one, we want to blame God, but then we do also have those moments when we we do see, like, I do see my fault. I do see my guilt. I do see my shame. I see what makes me feel like a, a, a failure, and my instinct is to cover myself up. Not to go to God and ask him to cover me. I'll clothe myself. And, and it, I've heard another pastor put it this way, super helpful, uh, of like, we like to cover ourselves with success which usually means, okay, then we first have to cover ourselves uh, with work and overworking. We cover ourselves with confidence. I see my fault. I see my shame. Okay, look at my skill set. Look at my diligence. Look at how responsible I am. Look at how I get the job done. We cover ourselves with wokeness. Look at how much I understand the culture and people and people who aren't like me, I get them. We cover ourselves with book smarts. We cover ourselves with theology smarts. We cover ourselves with uh, social media. As in, and I'm not saying this is like all conscious. A lot of this, like, look how much fun I have uh, and look how happy I am having this much fun. 
social media. Uh, we cover ourselves with comfort. We cover ourselves with pleasure. We cover ourselves with money. And not just, not just making money, but, but how we make that money. Of like, oh, I get the market. Do you get the market? Oh, I saw that coming. You didn't see that coming? Uh, we cover ourselves with spending money and not spending money. And then banking on how much we have in the bank. We cover ourselves with friends, having the right friends. And part of having the right friends is this unspoken uh, agreement that we actually don't really know each other and we don't get into each other's messiness. We cover ourselves with not having friends because then no one really knows us. We cover ourselves with our kids. Look how bright, look how athletic, look how beautiful they are. We cover ourselves with looks and products and literally we cover ourselves with nice clothes. Uh, look how I am not embarrassing. So we cover ourselves with all kinds of clothing because we know deep down that we're actually uh, more than exposed, we're filthy. And it says that not only are our sins forgiven, but we still need righteousness to cover us, to stand in God's presence. And so we are granted, we are gifted righteousness that is not ours, it is not from us. It's the work of God. This is, that, this is the stuff of the robes of righteousness, placed on Joshua. He's gifted this righteousness by declaration of God. Put those clean vestments on him. And the clothing of Joshua is a further rebuke of Satan. He is wrong about Joshua. At the, at the end of the sign of Jonah, that play, the people have called and they have heard witnesses testify. They've had the archangel Michael. They've had the prophet Jonah. They've had the queen of Babylon. They've had all these average German citizens come and, and testify. And in the end, the people find God guilty. And they sentence him. And it's just let the punishment fit the crime. And so this is what it says. It says, here's the, here's the sentence. God is sentenced to become a human being, a wanderer on earth, deprived of his rights, homeless, hungry, thirsty, he himself shall die and lose a son and suffer the agonies of fatherhood. And when at last he dies, he shall be disgraced and ridiculed. We have no right, we have no legal ground to demand such a thing of God and awesome irony and awesome grace. God fulfills such a blasphemous, self-pitying charge. The Son of God willingly left the bliss of his Father's glory and he takes on flesh. And he's born in a manger and he grows up an ordinary peasant in podunk town during imperial occupation. He lives a perfect life of obedience, completely fulfilling the law, loving God, loving others perfectly. And he's rejected by most most of the majority of his fellow countrymen and leaders. And then he's arrested by them. And he's tried for high treason against God. And he's tried in his own people and the state. And he is convicted. And he's convicted by false witnesses. A sham of a trial. And he is sentenced to execution by a coerced and corrupt state. And he is cruelly tortured by Roman soldiers. And he is finally executed as a criminal. And this is not the height of his punishment. Imagine that courtroom again. 
and as, as the gavel of God's judgment is coming down in like the dramatic moment of, of all drama, you know, it's as if God turns his eyes from you and he looks upon Jesus and he declares Jesus is guilty. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty that you deserve, taking your eternal condemnation. On the cross, he bore the just wrath of God for the sins, not his own, for the sins of his people. Our sins are removed from us. The guilt is removed from us. A New Testament commentator says this. He says, in his death, Christ was judicially handed over on account of our sins. Our sins were the judicial basis of his death. He was condemned because of our transgressions. And then here's the glory of it. In his resurrection, the judicial relationship changes. And by being raised from the dead, Christ was vindicated. He's acquitted. He's freed of all charges. He was declared to be righteous and accepted as such in the court of heaven. As in, he was guilty and condemned for our disobedience, but then he was justified and raised because of his obedience. And what does that have to do with us? His justification, his resurrection, it is also the basis of our justification and resurrection. As in, Jesus' resurrection becomes the judicial basis of our justification. Our sins caused Jesus' death, but Christ's life causes us to be freed of the guilt of our sin. And so when you put your faith, you simply put your faith in Jesus. You go back to that courtroom. When, when God the judge looks on you, he's not looking at your record. Your record has been given to Jesus. Your record has been imputed. It's been credited. It's been reckoned to Jesus. That it, it, all that is, is forensic, which just means legal. It's legal terms. It's, it, it's, a, it's a transfer term. Uh, it, it's, it's about our status. And what do we get in return? Is he gets our record, Jesus' record is credited to us. When God looks at you now, he sees the righteousness of his son. It's the great exchange. He gets the guilty verdict and he gets our condemnation and we get his uh, righteous verdict. And so we get heaven. That is to be declared just forgiveness, righteousness imputed to us, counted to us. And so this thing of like, it's not, a, it's not a verdict of, oh, innocent. It's so much more than just innocent. It's justified. Um, so Satan's accusations, they're wrong. They're wrong about Joshua. They are wrong about Jesus. And so they are wrong about us. And the justice of God is not compromised. It's upheld and it's fulfilled. In Revelation 7, remember we took this up as our confession of faith, in Revelation 7, John the Apostle, he's caught up into heaven, like Zechariah, and he sees all the people of God in the heavenly courts, and they're all wearing priestly clothing like Joshua, which means Joshua the high priest is representing all of God's people, which means you are Joshua. You are a sinner and you must stand before a holy, righteous God, and he must judge sin. And the only way you cannot be judged and stand in his presence is if you're perfectly righteous. And where does that leave you? So John asks the angel who's with him, he's like, wait, what is this? And the angel explains, 
They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Favorite Old Testament commentator says this about that. He says, strange detergent staining blood. What awesome irony. What awesome grace. Jesus, Lamb of God, must pour out his blood in the judgment of his crucifixion that there might be a fountain of blood where sinners lose all their guilty stains. That is the truth and the beauty of the gospel. Believe it. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you because you've sent your son to do what we cannot do, to do what we don't want to do, to take our sin upon himself, to gift us his own righteousness. Lord, we praise your son as our Lord and as our Savior. And we pray that our justification, that this, this declaration that you have made about us, that it would give us security, that it would give us assurance, knowing that we, that we stand before you not, not on the basis of anything we've done, anything we're doing, anything we ever will do. We stand before you just justified because of Jesus. What can steal that assurance? Help us to run back, to look to our Lord and Savior today and tomorrow and the next day and to know that we are clothed with his righteousness. Uh, to know that when you look at us, you see him. We pray that that awesome truth would give us assurance, that it would give us hope to love and to press on in the midst of these days and to hold out that hope and assurance to anyone else who wants to hear it. Our brothers and sisters here, even when they don't want to hear it, help us to hold out that hope and assurance. And, and, and to strangers uh, in the world, Lord, uh, bless us to be your church and to look to Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray in his name. Amen.